Hey, have you heard? We're two weeks away from the OB Guide Intern Challenge. Yeah, I know. And um, I am definitely already getting those text messages as per your request to try and um, make sure that we're troubleshooting and getting everything done before the deadline um, when uh, our incoming interns can join. So before April 30th, head over to the OBGYN Intern Challenge website. Really easy, obginternchallenge.com. There's a big button that says enroll now. And if you are a rising intern, you can sign up for this amazing study. We're going to get a podcast delivered to your phone via text message every single day with some reviews and some questions. Faye, have you heard with the OBG project that they now have this thing called the core? Yes, they have a resident core curriculum that they have created so that there can be a collective curriculum for all residents around the country. This curriculum is absolutely free to all residents, so even if you're not a chief resident where you can get OBG first, the premium product for absolutely free, you can still benefit from the awesome stuff at the OBG project by signing up for the core. And speaking of OBG first, if you are interested, you should definitely sign up because they can send you emails, you can create your own bookshelves, and it has really helped me this year where I'm starting to study for oral boards. Yikes, me too. So head on over to our website, www.creagsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar. You can find out more about OBG First as well as the core there. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creags Over Coffee. Coffee. So today we are going to be doing the evidence-based gynecologic surgery. I know that we've done the evidence-based C-section, so we wanted to make sure that we were fair. So Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? So we'll discuss evidence-based practices in the preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative settings for GYN surgery as put together by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. And then we'll also review the quality of this data with respect to those recommendations. We'll have a link on our website to some extra reading for today that's really a fabulous review of the surgical technical evidence um, for GYN surgery as conducted for the AHRQ Safety Program for Improving Surgical Care and Recovery. So Faye, I guess let's kick it off. You know, we have evidence-based C-sections, so I guess, yeah, you're right. It does make sense that we should have some evidence-based GYN surgery too. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, while we know that there are many different types of gynecological surgeries, we wanted to review some of the evidence that is there for best practices for the preoperative period, the intraoperative period, um, and of course the postoperative period that can be common to all of these surgeries. So to kick it off, um, I wanted to first talk a little bit about the preoperative period and what we can do and what um, the research has shown to improve patient outcomes. And these also include things that are part of the ERAS protocol or the early recovery after surgery protocol. So we'll start with a few things. And some of these things may also sound a little bit familiar because we also did an episode previously about intraoperative antibiotics and prevention of gynecologic infections after surgery. So some of this also incorporates that. So preoperatively, we'll talk about things like patient education, bowel prep, um, surgical site infection bundles, glucose management, diet, pre-anesthesia medication, and VT prophylaxis. So to start us off, 
the evidence suggests in a couple of randomized controlled trials that there are some potential association between preoperative patient education and improved outcomes, things like some decrease in length of stay and also um, perception of pain. Now, this is low-level evidence, but since patient education is never bad and there's really no risks to doing patient education, this is recommended. The second thing I wanted to talk about was bowel prep. So especially in minimally invasive GYN surgery, there is strong evidence that oral mechanical bowel prep should not be used. Even in those with high risk of colorectal resection, so in the sense of gynecologic oncology surgery, Based on colorectal surgery evidence, oral mechanical bowel prep alone is really not effective. Um, and so the use of one of the following regimens can be considered with some moderate level evidence, things like an oral bowel prep and an oral antibiotic or just an oral antibiotic alone to decrease infection. The other thing that I wanted to highlight um, but not spend too much time about is surgical site infection bundles. And there's a high level of evidence that the use of these surgical site infection bundles should be considered. And you can listen back to our episode on infection prevention and gynecologic surgery to learn more about that. Sometimes we know that while there is not great evidence for a single thing in these surgical bundles, the whole bundle itself can decrease uh, surgical site infection. So Nick, why don't you talk to us a little bit more about things like glucose management and diet um, and things like that? Yeah. I remember back when we did one of our very first episodes with um, Dr. Lauren Stewart about you know, preoperative testing, we talked a little bit about glucose management. And I think I remember her saying like glucose is one of the most important preoperative tests that you can obtain and probably mm -hmm. is the one that has had the most evidence for obtaining it. Um, and in this AHRQ review, they actually do mention that, again, a glucose goal of less than 180 milligram per deciliter prior to surgery has a high level of evidence behind it for improved perioperative outcomes and reduction of surgical site infection. Again, I'd refer back to that episode because Lauren did an awesome job on that, and it's always like an oldie but a goodie to listen to. I found myself going back to hear her wisdom multiple times. With respect to diet, kind of, I think once upon a time, folks would always just take that old adage of like fasting after midnight and say that's like the easy way to do it and be done with it, like nothing to eat or drink past then. Um, but more recent evidence actually suggests that we should try to reduce the amount of fasting time, saying that we should in or that we can ingest solids up to six hours prior to the induction of anesthesia and clear liquids up until two hours prior to the induction of anesthesia. And that actually has a high level of evidence behind it too, without worsening anesthesia outcomes. Carbohydrate loading is actually recommended at a moderate level of evidence. Um, you can consider ingesting carbohydrate drinks up until two to three hours prior to the induction of anesthesia. This can include things like apple juice, clear, ensure, um, other stuff like that, um, that again can help with post-operative recovery. With respect to medications, we focus on two different areas for pre-anesthetic medication to help improve outcomes. One is pain and the other is nausea. For pain, you can use the combination of acetaminophen, a COX-2 inhibitor, something like celecoxib, and or gabapentin in combination with a high level of evidence and improvement of immediate post-operative pain. With respect to nausea prophylaxis, again, you can use alone or in combination medications like scopolamine, midazolam, and gabapentin, again with a high level of evidence for that prevention of post-operative nausea with those anesthetic meds. 
The last bit that we'll talk about in the preoperative phase is venous thromboembolism prophylaxis. And overall in this category, there's moderate evidence supporting its use, but there's some caveats to that. Overall, the rates of venous thromboembolism are pretty low in gynecologic surgery patients. Um, so in patients undergoing surgery that's minimally invasive or laparotomy for benign disease, intermittent pneumatic compression devices alone are generally safe and appropriate. There is some weak evidence from observational studies that supports the addition of the use of preoperative pharmacologic prophylaxis for patients that undergo laparotomy for GYN malignancy. Um, but again, that evidence is weak and so probably depends a little bit on your institutional policies. Okay, I think that now brings us sort of into the next phase, which would be intraoperative things. Yeah, so there's just a whole host of things that I'm going to talk about, so bear with me. Um, the first is the use of drains. So there is actually high levels of evidence that routine use of certain types of drains, so the first being an NG tube, and also um, routine peritoneal drains are not generally recommended in GYN or even onc oncology surgery. Routine NG tube use has been associated with patient discomfort and has really no known benefit. And also in terms of routine peritoneal drains, like I said, not recommended even in cases where there is lymphadenectomy or bowel surgery. A 2017 Cochrane database showed that drainage was not associated with reduced rates of lymphocyst formation. However, the use of surgical drains actually increased the rate of symptomatic lymphocyst formation when the pelvic peritoneum was left open. And overall, there's moderate evidence there. The other things that I wanted to cover that were important were things like antibiotic prophylaxis. Again, we talked about this in our last episode about um, infection and gynecologic surgery. So there is uh, high levels of evidence that you should give antibiotics within one hour prior to incision per the CDC and ACOG, and also redose prophylactic antibiotics for long procedures or with high blood loss. So for example, with ANSEF, usually three to four hours after incision. Skin prep um, with 2% chlorhexidine and 70% isopropyl alcohol solution should also be done with high levels of evidence that this decreases the risk of surgical site infection. And also um, things like blood transfusion and maintenance of normal thermia um, with transfusion for hemoglobins between 6 and 10 and fluids to maintain intraoperative euvolemia have good levels of evidence as well to better post-operative outcomes. Finally, there's actually moderate levels of evidence for use of intra-op pain management. And by this, I mean actually injecting liposomal bupivacaine um, for laparotomy cases to decrease the use of post-operative um, opioids. All right, Nick. So we have gone through our surgery. We're done with it. The patient is now going to post-op. What are some of the things that are evidence-based in the post-operative period that can better patient outcomes? I think these are some of my favorite things, you know, because these are the things that definitely after your patient goes through the big surgery and they're looking for the road to recovery, you can be very encouraging about. Um, so let's start with sort of the early things. What should you be doing on day one after surgery? Number one is early mobilization. There's a moderate level of evidence behind that. Again, avoiding prolonged bed rest has been shown to be beneficial. Getting patients out of bed and mobilizing within 24 hours of surgery reduces the rate of venous thromboembolism and pulmonary embolus, and also helps protect against muscle atrophy and deconditioning. So again, up and at them. Next is early postoperative feeding. Um, and again, the recommendation here is within 24 hours of surgery, though 
it's noted that this can be as early as four hours after surgery with or without bowel resection, um, which is pretty neat because I feel like I trained always with like if someone had a bowel resection, we were pretty conservative in terms of advancing their diet back. There are two systematic reviews and one meta-analysis in this area that demonstrate early feeding is safe, well-tolerated, and results in an earlier return of bowel function, as well as a shorter length of hospital stay compared to those who were not fed early. The final piece of this early bit is the early urinary bladder catheter removal, or taking the Foley out, and there's a moderate level of evidence here. Catheter use for less than 24 hours is what's considered to be early removal in this case. Um, but sort of other caveats to consider would be a patient's fall risk and then the necessity for close urine output monitoring, particularly in high volume out type of surgeries. Um, so again, caveats to this here. But for uncomplicated surgeries, you could consider removal at six hours after surgery even to balance the rate of infection from catheter-associated UTIs versus that of urinary retention. Um, for complicated surgeries, again, you may consider like the morning after to be a more appropriate time. And in these things, by complicated, we're thinking like, you know, those long urogynecology type of cases or the long gynecologic oncology cases where there's a lot more dissection and you may just need a little bit more time for bladder rest. All right, so Faye, I think in this last bit, we're going to talk about bowel function and IV fluids. Yeah, um, and I was hoping that maybe you could comment a little bit on this because I know how much you love Colace, Dr. Burns. Oh, gosh, <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> so for prevention of ileus and to accelerate the return of bowel function, there is some low level of evidence in GYN surgery for the use of post-operative laxatives. And by that, I mean things like Miralax and Senna. And actually, we have learned um, from an excellent grand rounds by Dr. Burns that Colace is not effective. <laughs> There's very few things in medicine that have more randomized trial evidence against the use of something to show that it's absolutely useless. So docusate sodium, do not prescribe, or I would consider against prescribing. But that's my opinion, not necessarily the opinion of these authors that we're reviewing. That's true. Um, the next thing is actually providing chewing gum for your patients, and there's actually high levels of evidence to suggest that this is really good in preventing ileus and accelerating return of bowel function. And then the last thing to mention is a medication called alvimapan, which is a novel peripheral mu-opioid antagonist. While this medication may not necessarily be beneficial in benign GYN surgery, it may decrease ileus in ovarian cancer surgery and can be considered for use in patients undergoing bowel resection. The next thing I also wanted to talk about is early IV fluid discontinuation. And this kind of goes hand in hand with the early feeding motive as well. So basically discontinuing maintenance IV fluids within 12 to 24 hours following surgery, especially with early PO intake, has some low levels of evidence that this can lead to decreased length of stay. Also, it's uh, reasonable to tolerate urine output as low as 20 cc's an hour. I know that, you know, um, we've always been taught that urine output less than 30 cc's an hour is something that's abnormal. Um, but what these authors say is that it can be normal post-op to have lower levels of urine um, due to a normal post-op stress response. Um, and intervention may not necessarily be required. Like you don't necessarily need to bolus your patient. And finally, last but not least, post-operative um, VTE prophylaxis. Mechanical prophylaxis for the duration of the hospitalization should be considered for all inpatient GYN surgical 
post-op recovery patients. Um, and you can also consider adding pharmacologic prophylaxis for gynoc surgical patients um, with high levels of evidence. There's also um, good evidence to suggest that in patients who have um, gynoc surgery that have major laparotomy cases to extend their chemo um, prophylaxis for VTE for four weeks following their surgery. All right, Nick, that was a lot of um, evidence-based things to consider for our GYN surgeries. So why don't we go ahead and summarize? So we basically broke this down today into preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative evidence-based practices to consider. Preoperatively, we talked first about patient education, saying that there's a low level of evidence that patient education may improve outcomes afterwards, though there's no risk to it, as we mentioned, and obviously we're fans of education, so go for it. Bowel prep, there's not very strong evidence at all for the use of, and actually some evidence that suggests that an oral bowel prep should not be used prior to minimally invasive GYN surgery. And in those with high risk of colorectal resection, um, you could choose oral antibiotics alone or an oral bowel prep and oral antibiotic. Surgical site infection bundles have a high level of evidence as we've talked about before on the show. Glucose management is also important as we've talked about before on the show. Diet we talked about today to, again, reduce the level of fasting, solids up to six hours prior to induction of anesthesia, clear liquids two hours prior to induction of anesthesia, and recommendation for carbohydrate loading with a carb-loading drink like apple juice or clear insure two to three hours prior to anesthesia. Finally, we talked about some other medications to give prior to surgery, including medications for pain prevention, a combination of acetaminophen, a COX-2 inhibitor like celecoxib, and or gabapentin in combination as a high level of evidence for prevention of pain. And for prevention of nausea, you can use scopolamine, midazolam, and or gabapentin with a high level of evidence, again, for the prevention of post-op nausea. Finally, for VTE prophylaxis pre-surgery, the overall rate of VTE in GYN surgery is pretty low, but there's very little, if any, downside to using intermittent pneumatic compression devices, particularly for patients who are undergoing minimally invasive surgery or laparotomy for benign disease. There is some weak evidence that suggests the addition of preoperative pharmacologic prophylaxis for patients undergoing laparotomy for malignancy may be helpful, though. In terms of intra-op, there's high levels of evidence to suggest that we should not be doing routine NG tubes or routine peritoneal drains. Antibiotic prophylaxis is, of course, recommended, and there is high levels of evidence that this will decrease your post-surgical infection rate. Also using a skin prep with 2% chlorhexidine or 70% isopropyl alcohol, um, as well as giving blood transfusions for hemoglobins between 6 to 10 with fluids to maintain intraoperative eubulimia, maintain normal thermia, and also pain management with things like liposomal bupivacaine for laparotomy cases. Finally, we moved into the postoperative phase. We talked about the earlies, again, early mobilization, early alimentation or feeding, and early urinary bladder catheter removal all have moderate levels of evidence for their use and avoid bed rest to prevent DVTs. Early feeding can even be considered within 24 hours of surgery for patients who even have some bowel resection done. An early bladder catheter removal should be considered within six hours after surgery to balance the rate of infection versus urinary retention for uncomplicated surgery. And for complicated surgery, you might consider doing it the morning after. We also talked finally about prevention of ileus and the return of bowel function. Using postoperative laxatives has a low level of evidence, but I feel that there's a high level of evidence for not using 
dacusate sodium or cholase. So don't prescribe that or talk <laughs> to me about it, I guess. Chewing gum has a high level of evidence behind it. You can also consider things like alvimapan, which again is that novel peripheral mu opioid antagonist. And finally, we talked about early IV fluid discontinuation um, within 12 to 24 hours following surgery, especially if there's early PO intake, and even tolerating urine output as low as 20 cc's per hour because that can be a normal post-op stress response um, and not feeling like you need to bolus someone all the time because of that lowered urine output. Um, and last but not least, postoperative VTE prophylaxis is definitely encouraged, and there's good evidence to suggest that mechanical prophylaxis should be given to all GYN surgery patients with consideration of pharmacologic prophylaxis for gynonc surgical patients while they're in-house, and even to continue VTE prophylaxis for gynonc patients who have had a laparotomy for four weeks following their surgery. All right, I think that does it. We've covered the evidence-based GYN surgery. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee 1, on Instagram and Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee, or if you love the show, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Coffee. Send us some love, we'll send you some swag. We'll have show notes for this show and every other show on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Finally, if you have a correction for today's episode, you want to battle with me about colace, or you have any other concerns, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.